Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. On October 22nd, 1685, King Louis XIV of France revoked the Edict of Nantes, the decree promulgated by his grandfather Henri IV, which provided French Protestants with a degree of limited toleration. The choices facing those approximately 700,000 French Protestants were stark. They could renounce their beliefs and convert to Catholicism, resist, which could lead to imprisonment or death, or leave France, which was itself an illegal act. Ultimately, some 150,000 made new homes across Europe, from Switzerland to Berlin, from Rotterdam to Ireland, and others went even farther abroad to the Carolinas, the West Indies, even as far as the Cape of Good Hope and the East Indies. With me to discuss the Huguenot diaspora and how it changed the society, culture, and politics of the Atlantic world is Owen Stanwood. He's Associate Professor of History at Boston College and author of The Global Refuge, Huguenots in an Age of Empire. Owen Stanwood, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me. So um, you have a lot of great anecdotes and stories about normal people who are in extraordinary circumstances in the most unlikely places. So if you could uh, pick a uh, anecdote about that mo- the most unlikely Frenchman in the most unlikely place and uh, tell that story, and then we'll we'll pick through it. Great. Um, well, I mean, as you said, there's so many great characters uh, that I found researching this book. But I think the person who really kind of epitomizes uh, the the book most is a man named Jacques de la Casse. Uh, and, and Jacques de la Casse was uh, an ordinary guy. He was the son of a merchant, so kind of solidly middle class from southwestern France. Uh, and in 1683, he left uh, the kingdom in the midst of religious persecution. Uh, he went first to Brandenburg, where he joined the army, Brandenburg uh, being a, a German state. Uh, he stayed there for about five or six years. He moved from there to the Netherlands, where he signed up on a a really uh, bold scheme to create a colony that was called the Isle of Eden, uh, which was located in the Indian Ocean. So he he traveled by way of the Cape of Good Hope. Um, he ended up uh, with uh, 10 other Huguenot men uh, on a deserted island for several years uh, where they tried to make a colony and kind of waited for reinforcements that never came. Uh, from there, they built their own boat and went to the Dutch colony of Mauritius, where uh, they were put in jail for, for a, a, a complicated dispute over a piece of ambergris. Uh, they were eventually tried in Batavia, which is in uh, what is now Indonesia, and then acquitted and sent back to the Netherlands. Um, and you would think he would have had enough at this point. But uh, instead, when he got back uh, in 1698, he decided to sign up with another uh, imperial scheme, Uh, This one under the auspices of the English, and he ended up in Virginia in a a town called Manikin Town, which was founded on the frontier of Virginia near where Richmond is now uh, in 1700. Um, And and when I looked at at Lacasse's story, the question really wasn't why did he leave France, because we kind of know why he left France. It was was because he was was a Protestant and he was persecuted. Uh, But the question is, why did he go to all of these crazy places? You know, why did he decide to, to travel the world? And, and that's kind of the, the question uh, that, I, that I ask and try to answer in my book. And I think, I mean, the short answer is that he went to these places 
because various imperial actors in other people's states wanted him to. Uh, right. So, so this, there are at yeah. least, um, by my count, there are at least what four states involved in that in this story: uh, France, yes. the Elector of Prussia, mm-hmm. um, the Dutch, mm-hmm. and then finally the English. Yes. Right. Yes. So two mm-hmm. Atlantic empires and two then, well, three Atlantic empires, and then also uh, a, a growing European empire. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of there's a lot of state actors that show up in that story. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of state actors. And then he he ends up visiting um, Asia, Africa, North America. And of course, he's from Europe. So that's that's <laughs> four continents right there, too. Yeah. And so he, it's it's really an extraordinary story of of mobility in this very early age of globalization. Yeah. Um, and, and in some ways, I mean, he's extreme, as you said, but at the, he's not he's extreme but at the same time he uh, other huguenots must say yeah you, you did travel a lot but there were a lot of other huguenots who were there with him on that that eden isle of eden experiment mm-hmm. um he's just unusual that he went um huguenots traveled a lot they went very very far yes. and that's part of the story that's part of the, the the very simple question why is is at the heart of your book mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely right? and, and- yeah, he's one of the few who who went to all of these places, or so many yeah. of these places. But uh, but many went to at least one of those places, and, and yeah. it really was was a, a, a amazingly far flung diaspora during this early period. And it's worth remembering that this is a time where a peasant might travel twelve miles from mm-hmm. their house in the course of their life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, it's yeah. it's as far as you can walk. Yeah. Um, and back in a day. I mean, it's it takes a while if you if you only can walk. Mm-hmm. Um, so even Brandenburg uh, from was he from Poitou, uh, from uh, south? He was from, from uh, southern France, Gascony. So so a little okay. bit south of Bordeaux. So so from southwest France to Brandenburg is quite a ways. <laughs> that alone is impressive. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, go to the backstory. Um, be long before the book begins, stuff that you're familiar with that listeners might not be. Um, sort of the great fact of uh, French Protestantism is that John Calvin is actually not Swiss or Dutch. He's yeah. French, mm-hmm. uh, and he wrote in French. So can you take that story forward from Calvin first writing the Institutes when he was like, what, 26, 18? I don't know how. He was really young. <laughs> um, and then and what what happened? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. So the, the French Reformation begins, I mean, unlike some Reformations, it's not coming from the top. This isn't like Henry VIII wanting to get a divorce. This uh, really comes kind of from the, the grassroots. They're, they're missionaries who come in from Germany, uh, you know, as early as the 1520s and 30s. Um, but but Calvin, it becomes kind of the great figure of of early French Protestantism. Uh, he he's from uh, north of Paris. He he uh, uh, is you know like many of the early reformers, kind of a Catholic uh, a, a Catholic religious uh, you know in a Catholic religious order, uh, but converts based on Luther's and others' teachings, and then becomes one of the great theologians of the early Reformation. Um, and fairly early on, he he chooses to exile himself out of France. Uh, and first to Strasbourg and then eventually to Geneva, but he's still very much a Frenchman. Uh, and mm-hmm. from his perch in Geneva, he sends both writings, uh, you know, theological writings, which have a great influence in France, 
Um, and he also very early on starts training ministers and sending ministers into France as well. So the French Reformation really takes off in the 1550s uh, and 60s, uh, and it's very much a, a Calvinist uh, Reformation, which is driven by, by his teachings and, and has particular power uh, in the nobility. So the, the, the Protestants are never more than 10% of the population of France uh, at the highest estimates, uh, but, but a lot of very prominent people convert to Protestantism, which makes it a force right at the center of French political and uh, political life. In, in the Is there, there, there's a, a, as there was a, there was a hope um, that the, uh, the monarchy would become mm-hmm. Protestant as it happened in, in England, mm-hmm. um, eventually Scotland and German states that never quite happened. Um, in fact, they actually, I guess, Francis I was more um, more angered than intrigued, yeah. ultimately, like with the affair of the placards and so on. Yeah. Um, but uh, what percentage of the nobility of the were became Protestant? Because it's a, oh, higher a, than the proportion of the population. I think it's like 30 percent, something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, one estimate. Least, I, it, yeah, at least in the 20s. I think it's I, – I don't yeah. have the – the exact number, but but certainly so it's doubled. it's significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are people with power, with wealth, uh, who can drive this, uh, and 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 who can protect people, uh, yeah. who can yeah. protect ministers and drive this this you know experiment forward, this mm-hmm. this movement forward. Um, where where does Protestantism? Where is it centered? We mentioned Gascony is where mm-hmm. Jacques Lacasse was from. Um, right. That's one. That's in the far southwest. That's where yeah. Henry Henri of Navarre is. Yeah. Um, where are some other places? Uh, well, there there are a number of regional centers. Uh, the south uh, east of France, so Languedoc, uh, Dauphiné, up in the mountains, those places have have very high percentage of Protestants. Uh, also in the southwest, so both in in Henri de Navarre's territories, uh, but then further north in the the city of La Rochelle, which becomes the basically the capital of French Protestantism for much of this period. And the the uh, hinterland of La Rochelle, the province of Saintonge, uh, Normandy also has has a large uh, population of Protestants during this period, probably the most in the north of France. Uh, but there are there are Protestants. I mean, it's not uh, just one region. There are some regions that are particularly Protestant, uh, but there are Protestants in in most parts of France, with the, the exception of of a few provinces. Is it uh, would it be wrong? Is it wrong to see the Protestants as disproportionately uh, near the sea or connected with seafaring or merchant activities? Is that uh, uh, sort of exp- is that is that or is that a, a later sort of imputation? No, no. I I think uh, you know, especially in Western France, uh, they are definitely disproportionate in maritime communities like La Rochelle, La Rochelle like Dieppe. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the smaller port towns, um, and they tend to be, at least in those parts of France, very middle class. Uh, so a lot of merchants, a lot of mariners, a lot of uh, you know people like lawyers as well uh, tend to be mm-hmm. disproportionately Protestant. The situation is different in the southeast. Uh, so in Languedoc, there's actually a big population of of Protestant peasants and and rural rural farmers who who convert. But that's fairly exceptional. Uh, it tends to be more of a, a middle class, more of an urban movement. And would it be in sort of um, the the French equivalent of a county town? Is that where you would find them in other in other places? And yeah, yeah, I think I think that's fair to say. Yeah, places yeah, okay. like Saint. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so Henri of Navarre, he uh, says Paris is worth a mass, the great mm-hmm. cynical phrase. So it always sounds better in French. Um, <laughs> it converts to Roman Catholicism. Um, mm-hmm. And yet he puts forward, he promulgates this edict uh, to allow his former um, uh, co confessor co-confessors, some degree of toleration mm-hmm. within this new France that he is inaugurating. Um, they, how, what's the, the, the fate of, of Huguenots? Oh, for, and I should say, what does Huguenot mean? Um, uh, well, we, using this phrase? I know actually, this is a loaded question. Yeah, <laughs> we could probably talk about this for the rest of the time. Um, and I'll just keep it short because it's, is this is something that scholars don't really know and they argue about, but there's, there, there's several theories. One is that it's a, a, French version of the German word Eidgenossen, which means confederacy. It was used in in the early Swiss Reformation. Uh, Another theory is that the Protestants in the city of Tours used to meet for clandestine services under uh, something called King Hugh's Gate. So it became the the Huguenots, became kind of the local name for them. And then uh, it it extended beyond that city. Uh, But I think the, the main thing to remember about the word Huguenot during this period is that it's not a word that Protestants would have used to describe themselves. Uh, so they would have called themselves usually just Protestants uh, or sometimes the Reformed. Uh, uh-huh. It was a word that was created by Catholics and that and it certainly would have had a derogatory edge uh, in the 16th and 17th century when somebody used it. Uh, and it was not really until the 19th century when descendants of the Huguenots outside of France started to kind of reclaim their memory that they started mm-hmm. using it to describe themselves in a celebratory way. So this is what this this is a term the Catholics use, um, uh, like uh, throughout in, in Italy, for example. I've always struck they call everyone's a Lutheran, mm-hmm. every Protestant's just a Lutheran, right, right. Um, no matter what they what they might believe uh, or yeah, their yeah. attitude towards Martin Luther. Um, so the um, they seem to thrive. I mean, Samuel de Champlain probably was connected. He might have yes. been a kind of a Huguenot. Um, His, that's David Fisher's argument. Um, and a lot of people well, in Quebec associate with it. His family was They're certainly first. Protestant. Uh, yes. But, and but a, not, a lot of people I, associate yeah. with... Go on, sorry. Oh, yeah, I on. mean, there's no evidence, I think, that he was Protestant in his beliefs, but but his, his family background was Protestant. Yeah, and he's from La Rochelle, and there's a lot of, or and there's a lot of people uh, from La Rochelle, and then from certain Huguenot regions of Normandy who are involved in the initial um, voyages to Quebec. So there's a way in which French colonization at its beginning was also um, influenced by French Protestantism. It's interesting that it, this dates prior to the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In the 16th century, I mean, there's two uh, French, col- oh, yeah, well, three French colonial efforts, major ones in the 16th century, all of which are led by Protestants in Canada, in Florida, and in Brazil. So they're, they're very, yeah. very active during that period. So why does Louis XIV decide to revoke uh, Granddaddy's great <laughs> uh, piece? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, an, another another really big question of the time period. So Louis XIV was uh, an absolutist. Uh, I mean, that's what he's he's remembered for. Uh, L'état c'est moi, I am the state. That's his, his great catchphrase. Another, another he, wanted, he wanted to centralize power. Uh, and, and I think he saw kind of the separate jurisdictions of the, the Protestant churches, the kind of special status that they had through the Edict of Nantes, uh, as something that was a real political barrier for him, kind of creating the type of centralized state that, that he wanted. 
Um, and I think the other the other critical context uh, is that he uh, was kind of feuding with the Pope uh, in his own way. I mean, he was a very fervent Catholic, but also wanted to increase his own control over the French Catholic Church. Um, and going after the Protestants was a way for him to kind of prove his Catholic bona fides uh, in, while, while he was still kind of fighting with the Pope in, in other regards. So, uh, so I think mm-hmm. there's a combination of both political and religious motivations going on there. Well, one of the great questions that I've never had answers always strikes me is that why, why didn't he just send them to Quebec? <laughs> um, he, I mean, he's got hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, mm-hmm. He's got a, 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 a nice box that no one really wants to colonize. Right. Well, not a problem. That's he. <laughs> there's an opportunity. I mean, it works for the English. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. You know, they 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 did it. So mm-hmm. why not? Uh, why not? Th- why not completely change uh, the, the the history of of North mm-hmm. America by sending the Huguenots to uh, Quebec? Yeah. It's for it's Louisiana. A- yeah, it's a great question uh, because you know it would be this. This is one of the keys to the English colonial success: is that they they send the or encourage the people like the Puritans or even the Catholics in Maryland to go off and and uh, uh, settle these colonies. The the French, for for whatever reason, settle on a different policy uh, beginning in the the sixteen twenties and sixteen thirties, which is that they want. Uh, they, they want religious uniformity in their colonies. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think part of this is the influence, particu- particularly in New France of the Jesuits, who see this as a primary mission field uh, so that mm-hmm. they want to, to bring in these Native American converts, especially. Uh, so they don't want these, these Protestants kind of uh, confusing the Indians with these, with these different kinds of beliefs. Um, mm. But there are actually more Protestants in the French Empire in the 17th century than than you might think, even in in Canada. Uh, they're they're not supposed to be there, but actually, people <laughs> who are doing research in local records in in Quebec have found uh, that there are quite a few people who are kind of not you know they're not real public about their Protestantism, but it's clear that that there were many Protestants. Um, and, and what's interesting is that Louis XIV does actually uh, experiment with sending Protestants to the to the Caribbean. Uh, mm-hmm. So after the, the the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, he has a brief period where where he wants to send kind of the the worst Protestants in his view. So the ones who refuse to convert, uh, he wants to send them off to to be servants in in places like Saint Domingue and Martinique, um, and hope that they can kind of be become good contributors to the empire uh, and also hopefully give up their heresy. Uh, but this, mm. this policy doesn't really work. Most of them escape pretty quickly. Um, and, and it's a, a horrible they, PR move too. So they, they don't want to be there any more than they want to be on the galleys to which they would right. otherwise be sent. Yeah. Um, the, it is uh, no, it's probably for the same reason that he does, he, it, for the same reason that he revokes the edict that he does not send them to these colonies. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's just not tidy. It's just, it's just mm-hmm. so, it would be messy to do that. It's just mm-hmm. so disordered, you know, yeah, it's right, not right. appealing. It's not aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, so where do these people start to go? I mean, well, first of all, how does he start to round these people up? This is, this is the, the dragonade is the, is the term mm-hmm. for this, um, which is occurring even before the revocation of the edict. Yes. Um, what does he do to pressure these people? Um, mm-hmm. into becoming Catholics. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, a, a long program that actually dates back to the 1660s. So this is a 20-year a program to try to 
encourage and then force the conversion of France's Protestants. Um, he does it through a, a thousand, you know, there are probably a hundred laws that are passed over this period. Some, you know, so little by little, the privileges of the, the edict are, are chipped away. So certain churches are destroyed and not allowed to rebuild. Uh, Huguenots are, are disallowed from certain professions. So at some point they can no longer become lawyers. Uh, their schools are eventually shut down, their academies where, where ministers are trained. Uh, so little by little, all of these different laws kind of make life difficult for, for Protestants. And there's actually lots of conversions over the 1670s and early 1680s. And then in the 1680s, he moves on to the Dragonade, which is, uh, so essentially he sends royal troops into heavily Protestant areas, and they would come into your house and lodge there uh, and basically harass you until you convert to Catholicism. And the <laughs> moment you convert, they leave. Uh, if, if you don't convert, they kind of gradually uh, consume all your stuff, uh, you know, destroy your house until eventually you have nothing. Yeah. Uh, and, and this was phenomenally effective in, in uh, creating converts. And, and that, boys and girls, is why we have a Third Amendment. You, you <laughs> wanna, might, might want to go read it again. It's, <laughs> it wasn't this there. It's not this there because they had strange ideas. It's because it was uh, – this is how Charles I and Charles II, the Stuart monarchs, would occasionally take care of internal opposition. It's yeah, just yeah. <laughs> if, you really want to, if you really want to punish your people, send the army to stay with them. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So they uh, began, some, some, as you said, it's only 150,000 out of maybe approximately 700,000 leave. Right. Uh, which is, as I said in the beginning, illegal. Uh, yes. So they have to sneak out. Mm -hmm. uh, they have to somehow uh, find a way of getting, turning, I don't know, uh, property into cash or mm -hmm. they can't. Uh, they have to get to then what, how do they do it and where do they go? Uh, well, they do it in all sorts of ways. Um, the, the ones who are able to kind of see what's happening earlier and start planning earlier in the decade before, uh, b before the borders close in the same way do better. So if you can, especially if you can kind of get your wealth out, maybe to a relative who, who lives in England or the Netherlands or Germany, uh, and then kind of follow later, that, that's, that's the best in terms of having some resources. Uh, but a lot of people end up leaving and basically leaving their property behind, which is why so many of these refugees are, are, are so dirt poor, even those who had been fairly wealthy when, when they had been in France. Uh, and they go, they leave in any number of directions. Those who lived in, in Western France tended to go by sea. So you could find a boat out of La Rochelle or, or uh, some of the Norman ports that would take you to England or to Rotterdam. Uh, those who lived in other parts of France would often go overland, so you'd try to get to Lyon and then uh, find a guide to take you to Geneva. Uh, this was, of course, extremely dangerous because, you know, they didn't have border posts the way we do now, but uh, Louis XIV's uh, dragoons were, you know, on the lookout for all of these people leaving. So many of them did get caught, many of them were, were imprisoned or, or worse. Um, but uh, as you said, about 150,000 of them got out in, in one direction or another to Switzerland, to the German states, to the Netherlands, and to, to England uh, for most of them. So Protestant rulers in Europe begin to see these people as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, what do they see in them that says, 
this can this can work for us? Well, there's there's two things going on, and the first is religious. Uh, so this is uh, you know Louis the Fourteenth is the the epitome of European Catholicism, and these are all Protestant rulers, and uh, they're now kind of the most famous suffering Protestants in Europe. So this this is good PR to to help out uh, these these Protestant refugees. Even someone like Charles II in England, who's kind of a crypto Catholic himself, uh, sees kind of that, that that there's good reason to do this just to, to kind of show that that he's helping out the distressed Protestants. Uh, but then the other thing is that this is also a great age of uh, projects and kind of improvement and moving around populations. So. In kind of the great political economic theory of the day, you want to have more people. More people means more tax revenue, especially if they're more productive, you know, good middle class people who can, who are artisans or, or who are merchants, uh, that they, they can kind of contribute more to your national wealth. Uh, so very early on, I think the, the elector of Brandenburg, Fred, Fred, Friedrich Wilhelm, is the first person to really see like, well, I have problems in my nation. I have these places that are depopulated, that don't have as many people as they should have. How about I take these Protestant heroes who are also nice, skilled people and put them here, and then they'll kind of increase my bottom line. So it's a combination of charity and interest for, for these rulers. So how do the these uh, Huguenots begin to interpret their experience? Uh, wh- why they're leaving in order to survive, mm-hmm. um, and they also, as you say, at, at least initially, uh, the plan was to come back, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully as part of a very large fleet at, right. or at the head of yeah. a very large army. Mm-hmm. Um, was Is that their initial? How does that change over five or 10 years? Yeah. So when they leave, they're, uh, I mean, they see themselves in providential terms, largely. I mean, they they interpret themselves as the remnant of, of God's elect in France, which, you know, now so many of their neighbors have converted to Catholicism at this point and their family members. So they're kind of the last people who are able to kind of sacrifice uh, for, uh, for their, their faith. Uh, so, so they really see themselves as special people in, in that sense, kind of sufferers. Uh, the, Pierre Jourieux, who's kind of their, their spiritual leader, who's a minister who moves to the Netherlands, he he interprets them as the the two witnesses in sackcloth from the book of Revelation. So the people whose sufferings are kind of part of the beginning of the the drama by which Christ will return to earth. So they really see themselves as as, um, important people. Uh, And they set up colonies around Europe uh, with the goal of preserving their faith, preserving their language, so they can go back to France. Uh, So that when uh, the tide turns, they can return and bring bring this Protestant France uh, into being finally. Uh, and, and that vision lasts for most of the 1690s, but kind of, I'd say, gradually fades uh, because it becomes clear that, that Louis XIV is not either A, about to fall or B, about to change his mind about and, and suddenly tolerate Protestantism. Uh, and I think the real nail in the coffin comes uh, at the in uh, 1697 when there's a war in the 1690s uh, between Louis XIV and basically all his Protestant enemies. The war ends. 
the, the Huguenots say to the English and to the Dutch, well, you have to negotiate toleration for us as part of the final package to end this war, and they don't. Uh, so at this point, it becomes clear uh, there's no path back to France, and that becomes kind of more and more of a, uh, a distant goal. Uh, the, the Huguenots realize, those who have left, that they're kind of in, they're out of France for the long term. They have to create new communities outside rather than think about going back. There's a uh, just to move forward a little bit in in in, the, in time, but um, there's a way in which they I, maybe it's too strong to say that they re-internationalize Protestantism, mm. but they certainly they make uh, much more. The Huguenots are a, a one of, if not the uh, primary force in creating a sort of pro, the Protestant international. Yeah. Yeah, of the 1690s and the 17th, mm-hmm. and and you can see that maybe even stretching into the first Great Awakening, mm-hmm. uh, that there's this now there's this common um, suffering Protestant people, mm-hmm. uh, they're now common to various other Protestant nations, and they sort of unite them together uh, in 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 a way. Do you is that would you buy that or is that too strong? No, no, I I absolutely buy that. I think I mean the the Huguenots during the 1680s and 90s, I think, define themselves very explicitly that way. Uh, they say, you know, we we are the leaders of an international Protestant movement. Uh, we're we're kind of the examples of of spiritual strength in the face of Catholicism, but we also have practical knowledge of the enemy, so we can kind of lead this this cause to mm-hmm. dethrone Louis the Fourteenth and and even in I'd say even beyond the First Great Awakening. Uh, yeah. In, into the 1750s and 1760s, we still have, you know, everybody, all of these Protestant leaders, including, you know, even someone like an Archbishop of Canterbury would really view the Huguenots as important people in, in Protestantism. I, I would argue, mm-hmm. actually, he would, they, their importance was exaggerated a lot of times, uh, but, but they were, were seen as very, very critical people in this, in this international coalition. Uh, the they look are always looking for Eden, and it's always mm-hmm. struck me in the what I've said amongst the English colonizers and what you talk about the, the Huguenots is how important the concept of Eden is. Right. It's very important to the people who found the Royal Society, mm-hmm. um, but it's also important to these these people who are not savants and intellectuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, this looking for Eden in unlikely places. Can you explain the how the concept was important to the Huguenots and mm-hmm. where they look mm-hmm. for it? Yeah, I, I think part of it has to do with, you know, very early on during this age of persecution, uh, the, the Huguenots start to interpret France as Babylon uh, and, and use this language of you know, France as being this, this uh, kind of uniquely awful and, and evil place. And I think one of the, the very natural corollaries to that is that they start to think about, well, what is a better place? And the better place is, is Eden, wherever that might be. Uh, and even before uh, large-scale migration, there's a lot of French Protestant, what I would call utopian writing, where, where they just talk about uh, ideal societies. I mean, ideal societies, both in a Christian sense, but just in, in kind of the sense of all utopias, just places where, where life is, is easier. Uh, and, and very often these societies are placed in the Indies, so in, uh, particularly in the Americas, but it could be the East Indies as well. So, so there's a whole rash of, of utopian, both, both fiction and I, what I would call semi-fiction. So 
the one I talk about in my book the most is, is by a guy named Charles de Rochefort, who's a, a minister in Rotterdam. He writes this, this very long book about the, the Caribbean and, and the Americas in general and, and describes all of these kind of native-run utopias that, that uh, refugees have gone and, and lived in beginning even in the, the 16th century. So there's this, this kind of literary trope that's available to Huguenots of various New World Edens. Uh, so I think it becomes very easy for them once they start to, uh, once they're kicked out of Babylon to try to figure out, well, where, where can I find Eden? Uh, where might mm-hmm. this be? And it's very natural for many of them to look to the New World as a, a possible place where they might find it. And in so many of the movers and shakers in the new world and the projectors, I'm thinking of uh, William Byrd, the uh, second mm-hmm. William Byrd of Westover. Right, right. Um, he's well, his father, certainly uh, William Byrd, the first is friendly with the Huguenots who settle at Mannequin mm-hmm. town. Yeah. Um, but the birds are always looking for a better sort of person to come to Virginia because the problem with Virginia <laughs> is it's Eden, mm-hmm. but it's filled with English people. Mm-hmm. And if you could only find like Huguenots or Swiss, some kind yeah. of nice continental Protestant, it would really, it could really bust out of its, you know, holding pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, there's always a search for a new population for Eden going on amongst uh, people like the birds. And there are many others. There are people like that in the Caribbean. There are people like that, yeah. I don't know, in Quebec. Uh, if we could only just get a better sort of person here, uh, we could do really well. Yeah. And the Huguenots f- fulfill that. They are. Obviously, they're a suffering saints. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're a better sort of person mm-hmm. uh, by definition. And here they come. Yeah. Is, that how they get, is that how they get attached to schemes of economic improvement? I, I think that's fair. I think, I mean, they, they gain a reputation very early on as the good immigrants. They're the people you want. They, they have skills. They're nice and pious. They're, they're Protestant. They're not going to make any trouble. Uh, so you have a real competition among uh, projectors of various sorts. If they're looking for people to settle in whatever place they're, they're trying to settle, uh, Huguenots are kind of a natural, uh, a, a natural population. But the other thing I would say is that the Huguenots themselves actually cultivate this reputation mm-hmm. and and push it them, themselves. I mean, they they write uh, these many many petitions to to various rulers from you know the late 1670s onward, where they they talk about themselves in kind of this this sense both of you know, we're so godly, we're, we're so pious, we're, we're also grateful to you, and we're going to be, you know, really uh, uh, grateful political subjects. Uh, but we're also very productive, and we have all the skills you would want. Uh, you know, we, we, we have, we're, we're good farmers, we can grow the things that, that you really want, want uh, to grow that, that English and Dutch people don't know how to. Uh, so they, they present themselves as uh, economic actors as well as religious actors in a way that I think is very appealing to to uh, foreign rulers. Right. I mean, you'd be a fool not to turn them down. You know, they might be, they might actually be able to do it. And they also, they, they play so well upon the disgust that both certain projectors uh, and entrepreneurs in the colonies and also administrators in London or uh, uh, in Amsterdam have that the colonies are sort of uh, focused on a single commodity where the mm-hmm. sugar or tobacco right. that they, these people can make things they, these can they can diversify mm-hmm. uh, and how much that will be better for the bottom line so two things that they promise to diversify into or they're used to diversify into are silk and wine uh, right. how does that work 
So silk and, and why, wine. Why, why do they have? Do they have any knowledge of silk and wine before they come? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Do they, do, um, yeah. I, I think. Uh, well, I'll answer that one in a minute. I'll I'll start with okay. just kind of the All general right. background of of silk and wine. I mean, these are two. The the mania for these crops predates the the Huguenot migration by some oh, yeah. decades. Uh, so really, from the moment of exploration and settlement of the Americas, this is one of the key goals, particularly of the English, uh, is to to uh, find mulberry trees with silkworms that then we can make into raw silk uh, and to find grapes that will make wine. Uh, and and I think the reason is, I mean, the, the, the simple reason is that these are the things that the English are spending the most money on from foreign places. So mm-hmm. they buy their wine from France for the most part. They buy their silk from Italy. Some of it comes from the East Indies. Uh, but political economists see this as being really detrimental to the n- national balance of wealth, uh, balance of trade, uh, that, that they're, they're spending way too much. Uh, they, they try making it in England. King James I has the, you know, encourages people to try to plant mulberry trees in, in England. It's just too cold. It doesn't work. Uh, so colonial projectors think, well, maybe we can do it in the colonies. And Virginia tries from very early on. But they're like, well, not only is it too cold in England to produce silk, but English people have no talent in this. They also can't make wine to save their lives. So we need (laughs) people from other places, whether it's Italians or Greeks or whoever. They go through all sorts of various people who might be able to do it. And then when when the revocation of the Edict of Nantes happens, they're like, oh, there's all these French people. They'll definitely be able to do this. So They know everything there is to know about wine. Exactly. And and of course, the, they probably don't, or, or most of them don't. Uh, the, the first great petition in which Huguenots claim, like, we can make silk and wine in the empire is from 1679 uh, by, by two Norman refugees who, are, who want to go to, to <laughs> Carolina. Normandy doesn't have silk or wine. Uh, this is the part of France that's least likely to, to have people who, who have any sort of knowledge of, of these these crops. Uh, but they kind of play on the fact that the English think all French people know about silk and all French people know about wine. And they say, of course, you know, the, the line I see in these petitions all the time is like, all of us have been bre- born and bred in the vineyards. So they're, <laughs> and it's, it's almost certainly not true, but they're willing to kind of play that up. Um, there, there were a few Huguenots who go to America who do seem to have had some experience with, with silk and wine. So it's not that None of them did. You know, some were from no. the Loire Valley, sure. uh, some were from Languedoc. Um, but I would say the vast majority did not really have much experience. It, but we, if you were a lawyer in La Rochelle, your, your familiarity with both silk and wine is close to zero. Yeah, um, yeah. You probably drank a lot of wine. You would know it that absolutely. way. But, uh, yeah. You know good wine when you drink it. <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, they, but off they go. And could you mm-hmm. list some of these diverse places and communities and projects that they are involved in? Because mm-hmm. it goes on. You've mentioned a couple. This is the Isle of Eden, right. which is, I think, Rodriguez, somewhere uh, in yeah, the yeah, uh, smack Island. dab in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, smack dab in the middle of the Indian Ocean. But in the Atlantic world, what are some of these places? So, in in North America, the the center of the the two great centers of Huguenot colonization are on the one hand South Carolina which which has 
probably at, at its height about 500 population of about 500 Huguenots, which sounds small, but was about a third to a fourth of the, the European population of the colony at the time. So a, a very large percentage. Um, in New York, uh, there's a, a large population in New York, both in the city and then they found the colony of, of New Rochelle. Uh, New England has a couple of small colonies, uh, which are mostly organized around uh, producing naval stores, so turpentine and, and tar and things like that from the, the woods. Uh, Where are those? There are uh, Oxford, Massachusetts, which is right near, near Worcester, so kind of in central Massachusetts, uh, and then one in what is now Rhode Island in uh, the town of East Greenwich, which was known, known then as Narragansett. Um, there were other, so outside of, of what became the United States, there was a colony in Tobago, which was a, a Dutch island. Uh, there was a, a fairly large colony in Suriname on the, the northern coast of, of South America, which was also Dutch. Uh, and then, of course, the Cape of Good Hope uh, in South Africa, which uh, was also about the same size as South Carolina and about the same percentage of the population. So a very large uh, large percentage of the, the colonial population of South Africa was was of French descent. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and there, in all these places, well, I know in, in Virginia and South Carolina, they're certainly trying to make silk and, and wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. New England, you said they're doing naval stores. Yeah. Um, what are they doing in the Cape of Good Hope? Wine? Wine, yes, and and this yeah, is perhaps that worked. The, yeah, it's the one mm-hmm. it's the one successful experiment I think in in my book uh, because the, this has been a goal of the the Dutch colony at the Cape for for years. They they want to be able to provision the ships that are going to the East Indies, uh, and they want to to both grain and wine. And they have Dutch farmers that they bring in who who are kind of doing the grain. But they think that the French will be able to do the wine, and and uh, you know, in the 18th century, people keep going to the Cape of Good Hope and drinking the wine and saying, like, well, it's not really very good, um, with with a few exceptions. They they are usually very critical of it, but they are able to buy a lot of it, and and you know, beggars yeah. can't be choosers, especially if you're on an East India <laughs> ship going to, to yeah. Batavia. So there, there aren't it. a lot of other stores around exactly. by the time you get to the Cape of Good Hope. Yeah. Uh, so, so they're they're somewhat successful, I'd say, in in what they set out to do. And they uh, they eventually achieved uh, they eventually achieved uh, international takeoff. <laughs> yes, um, yes. So uh, you um, describe uh, in one chapter you call um, disappearing to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you mean by that? Because uh, it's a lovely, it's a great kind of meditation on even the immigrant experience. Mm-hmm. Really. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we we were when we were talking a few minutes ago and, and we we're talking about Huguenot colonization, uh, we pointed out that the purpose at the beginning was to preserve their culture, to preserve their language because they wanted to go back to France. And, and they abandoned that goal relatively quickly. Uh, and, and in the standard reading of Huguenot history, what happened then is they assimilated. So that's most accounts of the Huguenots have stressed this. They quickly disappeared. Uh, and as I looked at the development of these communities in the 18th century, I found that while that was broadly true, I thought it needed a little more nuance. And, and uh, that's where, where I came up with this idea of disappearing to survive. What, what I think happened is the, the Huguenots decided that in order to have the most influence, they needed to kind of outwardly conform to whatever place they found themselves. 
but that didn't necessarily mean they didn't want to be French anymore, wanted to give up their culture, give up their, their religion. And, and I think the, greatest, the easiest example to see this is with Huguenots who joined the Church of England. Uh, particularly in the American colonies, which people have noted this for a long time. A vast majority of Huguenots became Anglicans, which seems on its surface to be pretty strange because uh, mm. the Church of England was not a Calvinist church. You would expect they would have become mm. Presbyterians or something. Oh, okay, go on. Uh, well, you know. In, anyway, I'd say in the so late 17th, subject. early 18th century, it's not a Calvinist church, but, but Ooh, we can agree. Depends on which uh, depends on which um, Anglican minister you hit with a rock. Yeah, yeah. They well, might, maybe you know. that's true. Okay, I'll give you that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, they they do, and this has long been a question that that historians have asked. And but the thing is, when you look at this this conformity, it's often less real conformity than a conformity in appearances. Uh, so there's lots of complaints by Anglican, by English uh, officials who come in and, and go to these, these parishes that like, well, they say that they're conforming, but their services are still in French and don't seem to be any different from, from how they were before. Uh, so the, one of the South Carolina uh, officials says their, their hearts are in Geneva. Uh, so uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's an outward conformity, uh, but, but still kind of maintaining aspects of the community and, and this outward conformity is in the, the service of their larger goals. So they, they want to be full members of a British empire or a Dutch empire kind of assimilate to, to the degree that they can kind of rise up through the ranks. Um, but then they'll still use that influence to, to help causes that are distinctly Huguenot causes, like trying to get more people out of France in the 18th century. So there's new co- new colonial efforts later on mm-hmm. that are often led by these descendants of the original refugees. So I think, you know, while assimilation happened or acculturation or whatever you want to call it, it wasn't a complete or quick path like some previous scholars have have uh, have said. So, yeah, so on that last point about uh, the what they did for future refugees and, mm-hmm. and future waves of, of, of colonization, you uh, describe how numerous Huguenot descendants became imperial leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are some of these people and what, mm-hmm. what did they do? Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are many, many of them. So in, in England itself, I'd say the most famous is, is Jean Ligonier, who, was, who became basically mm-hmm. the head of the, the entire army in the Seven Years' War. Uh, in in an imperial context, uh, the one that I talk about most in my book is a guy named Paul Mascarene or Mascarene, who uh, uh, was an official in Nova Scotia, became acting governor there, um, and you know used his influence among other things to kind of push for uh, for uh, Huguenot colonization in in Nova Scotia during the 1720s. Um, there are other people, I don't mention them as much in my book, but there are several governors in Dutch Mauritius, one high up official in the Cape who are of, of Huguenot descent. Um, there's also a lot of officials in, in the uh, or high ups in the Church of England, uh, and a, mm-hmm. especially in the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel yep. in Foreign Parts, which is the foreign missionary wing of the church. Uh, so we have Francis Lejau in, in uh, South Carolina and, and Ely No in New York who are are really prominent people in that society who are, are who are French. 
and who uh, and the SPG puts together the Book of Common Prayer in French for mm-hmm. the New Rochelle mm-hmm. Church. I know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's um, and they do drive forward that project, and the SPG is full of imperial and other types of projects, mm-hmm. and that's definitely where they, that's definitely where the Huguenots uh, who become ministers like to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what did you mean when you uh, decided to call the book um, "Global Refuge"? Well, it I, I was thinking about kind of the the scale of of the Huguenot world, and and another scholar who who's influenced me a lot, whose his name is Bertrand van Roenbeck, who's written about uh, particularly about the Huguenots in in South Carolina, and I've coined the idea of an Atlantic refuge, kind of this this idea of the Atlantic world as being in some ways kind of a common geography for Huguenots who could go to England or to Carolina or to, to somewhere else. Um, and I liked his concept quite a lot and it, it influenced me a lot starting out. But as I did more research, I came to realize that that the Atlantic world was actually not big enough for this book, hmm. uh, that that uh, the, the Huguenots saw the whole world in some ways as, as a refuge and, and particularly kind of the idea of going global uh, that that uh, having kind of a, a global imagination in a time of persecution was was a, a great benefit for these people that they could uh, you know find create these global networks in order to uh, have much more of an influence than you would have thought that they would. I mean, this is a, a fairly small embattled minority, uh, but they're able to kind of leverage their status as global refugees, as people who kind of maintain these these networks and have traveled to all of these these far flung places uh, to bring opportunities for themselves that they would not otherwise have had. What were some of the effects that the um, this this global refuge had on everyone else in the well, in not just the Atlantic world, but mm-hmm. ar- around the world? Mm-hmm. Um, so, in other words, you know, what did the Huguenots ever do for us? <laughs> uh, they didn't. They didn't do silk. They didn't do wine. They never re- refounded Eden. Right. So, what did the Huguenots do for us? Well, I, I think that the thing that the Huguenots gave us that's the most important, to be honest, is the word refugee. So the the hmm. the word refugee didn't. Uh, didn't have wasn't commonly used in the English language until the 1680s to describe uh, these these people, um, and and even you know in the 18th century basically any time the word refugee was used it was used to describe a French Protestant it was only later that it became kind of assigned to to other people, uh, but but I think that with that word comes kind of the the concept of uh, of states giving aid and relief to people that they see as being kind of worthy, uh, worthy persecuted people, whether it's for religion or, or for other reasons. And, and I think, you know, if you look at it in a number of different national lenses, uh, the, the fact that the Huguenots were there and played this role had, had a, a lot to do with kind of the way that, in particular, the American self-image as a place that accepted persecuted people from around the world kind of got started. Um, I mean, you can see other roots of it too with the pilgrims and the Puritans and the Quakers and other kind of English English people. But I think the Huguenots played a really outsized role in uh, the self-conception of America as a place that that accepted the downtrodden of, of, of the world. And hmm. uh, and I think it's easy, you know, it's it's true that the Huguenots never 
had the influence. I mean, they claimed that they could remake America in, in every way, you know, economically, religiously, and, and none of that came to pass. But I think the fact that they were so important, that people thought that they could do it, uh, had, had a great impact on kind of how America perceived itself in the 18th century and, and how other places, you know, you could extend this to, to England, uh, you could extend it perhaps even to South Africa as well, that, that these people played a very prominent role in kind of national conceptions of, of, them, of, of these places kind of as they developed in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, let me ask you a few um, sort of behind the book questions mm-hmm. about the how you constructed the book and how you conceived of the book. Um, first of all, how, how did you do research for this book? I mean, this, <laughs> you've been doing this for some time. Yes. Um, it requires at least French. Well, you have the English. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, obviously, you have the French. Uh, do you have Dutch? I mean, did you, did you have to have some Spanish? I mean, what what how many what did you have to do in order to construct to do the research for this history? Um, so, I mean, in terms of languages. Uh, you know, French and English were the, the main research languages that I used. Um, I did learn some Dutch. Uh, it became clear to me very early on that, that it, would, it would be impossible for me to really do justice to a place like the Cape of Good Hope unless I could read some of these documents. Uh, I, I took a summer uh, Dutch reading class at Columbia University. <laughs> I, I practiced quite a bit. I, I'm still, I will be the first to admit, very bad, but I'm, I'm good enough that I can at least... Uh, get get through enough of the documents that that uh, I, I could do the research. Uh, I, some you know in terms of scholarship and and some of the sources were in German, which I have a little bit of as as well. Um, Spanish didn't really come into it as much. Um, mm-hmm. They they didn't really go to to Spanish speaking places, the, but they they really wouldn't. I mean that would yeah, be like yeah. out of the frying pan into the fire. That would have <laughs> yeah. been a um, uh, but. The uh, what did you uh, want to do differently for this book than uh, other books? There, this is not the first time people have writ- written about mm-hmm. the uh, Huguenot, the diaspora. Right. Um, so, where did you see? Your, your, I mean, and the, maybe some of those books came out while you were conceiving this one, uh, and in which case, I can imagine how you felt. Uh, <laughs> but what were you? What were you trying to do that was your own? That was Owen mm-hmm. Stanwood's and not mm-hmm. anyone else's. Well, what? So I. I by training, I'm a colonial American historian, and I came to the Huguenots from colonial American history and just thinking about their their role in, in places like Massachusetts and, and New York. And, and there had been some scholarship on that, but it was the last kind of big synthetic book was John Butler's book that came out in 1983. So it had been a while, and I thought, well, maybe there's something new to say about this when I started doing research. Uh, but what I came to notice as I got kind of deeper into the, the scholarship on the Huguenot diaspora, which, uh, I mean, as you said, is a rich scholarship that goes back centuries, so there's plenty that's been written, is that it tends to be very localized. So even, even a book like Butler's book, which, which is, is a colonial America-wide, he does Massachusetts, New York, and South Carolina and compares the three, or, or you'll see very nice studies of Huguenots in New York or Huguenots in the Netherlands or Huguenots in England. Um, But I was really interested in connections. Uh, And I thought that if you looked at uh, the ways all of these places developed together and the sorts of forces that they, that, that they all came from, you could start to, to kind of make new connections and particularly see Huguenots as more critical players in this world than we've previously seen them as though. So, uh, so much of, of the story of the Huguenots has been um, kind of, well, everyone was 
interested in them for a while and then they just kind of faded away. Uh, and and I, I didn't think that that was kind of capturing their critical importance in, in the moment of the late 17th and early 18th centuries. And, and you know, you, if you look at any one Huguenot community, that's what happens. It starts mm-hmm. it very it's, you know, quickly, it's gone. But if you realize that this is happening in dozens of places around the world on different timelines, and these people are sometimes talking to each other, and some of them, like Jacques de Lacoste, actually move from one place to another, um, it starts to look much more vibrant and, and long-lasting and important. Um, and, and so I thought that we, it was really time for somebody to take a global look at the Huguenots. And, and uh, so my colonial American vision, you know, kept getting wider and wider, which, which <laughs> made researching the book really hard because yeah. <laughs> now I'm dealing with South African history and the Indian Ocean and all of these places I never thought I'd be doing research on. Yeah, you, you didn't sign on for that in grad school. This no, is uh, no, not where you no. thought you would go. Um, so your your first book was The Empire Reformed, uh, English-American Age of the Glorious Revolution. You've just given an indication um, how this book was related to that book. Um, right. It's it's very much, I can hear some of the same people are involved, some yep. of the reformers, the projectors. Um, how... Um, let me ask you a really unfair question. <laughs> okay. Now that you've got this, yeah, let me, now you've gotten this book out, what, when you look at it, what do you wish that you had done differently? Um, with this how, book or with you, the first yeah, one? Yeah, with this book. Yeah, well, uh, okay, with this book. But how do, how do you feel that you've improved and, and, and what mm-hmm. do you, uh, since the first one and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and what do you wish you had done differently in this one? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I know that yeah. I, I asked that because I know historians probably spend far too much time thinking about that. So I just right. thought I would <laughs> have uh, well, you say it out loud. You know, it, yeah. it, it's interesting because I, I both of my books came out of kind of a, a belief that the, the late 17th century is a really critical time that, that yeah. particularly in American history doesn't get enough. Ab- absolutely. Enough attention. The Death Valley of the Ed Landsman, the Death Valley of the American right, Survey. Right, exactly. Yeah. From, from basically Begin's Rebellion to, to the first shots of uh, young George Washington. Yeah, it's yeah. like the, the Death Valley. It's yeah. the, it's awful. Yeah. It's yeah. like one week in the syllabus, if that. Um, if that. But, it's five so, minutes. <laughs> so I, and, and I came to believe, you know, in graduate school that this was a really critical time, both in America and in the world more generally. So I, I think both of the books kind of come out of that in, in different ways. And, and I learned, I think, writing the second book, I, I, you know, I, I stand by my first book. I think, it's, I think it's good for what it was trying to do. But uh, I think taking this broader approach has helped me to, to kind of understand the period in a way that I didn't then. Um, and, and in terms of, I mean, with, the, with this Huguenot book, I, I think, um, you know, it came out what was that, six months ago, or, or maybe even less. Mm. So I, I, I haven't had time to have a lot of regrets yet, I think, about the, <laughs> the way that it looked. Um, but, but with a, a topic like this, the, the frustrating thing mm. is that, uh, you know, even in the few months since this book has come out, I, you know, like a, a month after a, a book came, my book came out, I read two essays on the Huguenots in Suriname, that directed me to all these sources that I didn't know existed. And I was like, well, this is, oh. <laughs> you know, this Why is Why did you shame. read those? Why did you read those essays? You knew that you were <laughs> I know, opening up I know, a, a yeah. can of hurt when you Yeah, had... yeah. Why, why do I even? You should have waited six months. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, with a topic like this, that's so huge, like there's, you know, there were things I didn't get to. There were things I could have done. There, There's, I'm certain, 
many, many sources, especially in European libraries and archives that, that I just didn't find for whatever reason. So, um, you know, the thing about any work of historical scholarship is, is, you know, it's done when you decide it's done. It's not done because yeah. you've read everything or know everything. This causes everything. lots of problems for the dissertation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's yeah, why some people can, yeah. never finish. Um, never and, finish. And I, it's, yeah. It becomes it, a sort of emotional problem. Yeah, uh, you yeah. always know that there's something. I mean, really, it does. I don't know if you felt. I I felt that way, mm-hmm. you, because you know, without beyond a shadow of a doubt, that there's something else out there. Right. How can I? How am I morally? How can I morally right. stop at this mm-hmm. point? Uh, how dare I? Yeah. And well, so I must keep looking. Yeah. For me, I Oof. had a job and I had a deadline. I was like, oh, I have to start my job. I guess my dissertation. That really helps. Be done, so. Yeah. Um, you talked about the Atlantic world. I'm going to finish with this. Um, back uh, in the last 20 or 15 years, uh, certainly starting around 20 years ago, there was, wasn't an early Americanist job that didn't talk mention the Atlantic world yeah. in it, uh, which I now realize is means that other historians outside of early American history, th- that when you see an ad like that, it's not, it's being written by the Asianist and the 19th century American historian and the, and the person who does Middle East history. And finally, they've gotten the idea filtered through to them that Atlantic world, Atlantic world's really important to these early American guys. We better look for an Atlantic world historian, right? That's because, I mean, that's how it works when we're advertising for an Asian historian, you know? Um, that often indicates, not to be cynical, that the subject is just about to outlive its usefulness mm-hmm. in the actual subspecialty. Mm-hmm. Um, because things things go in cycles yeah, by the time absolutely. that, you know, that's, so do you think the, first of all, was the Atlantic world a useful concept? I think you're going to say yes. Uh, why? And mm-hmm. do you think that we're now moving to something else? And if so, what? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think, uh, I mean, yes, I do think it's a useful concept. I mean, it's been extraordinarily useful to me in my career. Uh, why? And, and I think that it, it, it it's useful because it helps us to understand the lived experiences of people at that time. And partic- I mean, just to use the Huguenots as an example, I think, you know, Atlantic connections mattered quite a lot. The fact that these people, mm-hmm. so for example, merchant families of the 18th century would have somebody who lived in La Rochelle and somebody who lived in London and somebody who lived in Charleston and, and Rotterdam, and that these were uh, ways that that both goods and ideas moved around, and that there was some sort of common experience in the various parts of this world. Uh, I, I think it helps us to to understand the world from the perspectives of the people then, as opposed to a nation state conception, which were which which we often have now, which of course was was not theirs. So I think it's a very mm-hmm. useful a, a very useful tool in in that sense. Uh, I will say that I. You know, as when I first imagined this book, I thought of it very much as Huguenots in the Atlantic world. Um, I, I quickly became, you know, as I already said, I've, I've mm-hmm. came to believe that the Atlantic world wasn't big enough; that uh, it, it's actually about global expansion and and not just Atlantic expansion. And that's one of the criticisms that people have of the concept of the Atlantic world is that it essentially artificially cuts off. Asia, Africa, mm-hmm. the other part of Africa, the Indian subcontinent, places that are very much connected in kind of an early modern uh, global world. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I think, I mean, I do, I, I think those criticisms are valid and, and um, 
you know, we need we need to attend to them as as well as those from within American history that, you know, a continental framework might be better, a hemispheric framework looking more at, at Latin America and North America. But I think my, my final word on this is just that all of these things can be valid. Uh, and, and I think that we historians, you know, we're very, uh, you know, we, we go by our trends like everyone does. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, things, historiographical concepts rise and fall. But I think we can actually retain the things about the Atlantic world that have been useful, but also supplement them with, you know, also thinking globally, also thinking about national history when it's appropriate, also thinking about uh, regional or imperial histories. So, you know, depending on the types of questions you ask, I think an Atlantic frame might be the right one or it might not be. Um, So that's what I think about it. My guest today has been Owen Stanwood. He's author of The Global Refuge, Huguenots in an Age of Empire. Owen, thanks so much for being on Historically Thinking. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.